Welcome to Law Talk, a podcast series produced by the University of Minnesota Law School, featuring events, webinars, and panel discussions about diverse topics at the intersection of law, policy, and education. On this bonus episode, Minnesota Supreme Court Q&A 2023, Minnesota Law annually hosts a Minnesota Supreme Court oral argument with students in attendance. Following the hearing, Minnesota Law students posed questions to members of the Minnesota Supreme Court gaining insights into serving on the highest bench of the state. This Law Talk bonus episode will highlight that Q&A. This event was recorded on April 12, 2023. Subscribe to the Minnesota Law Podcast feed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or via your preferred podcast application by searching University of Minnesota Law School for more Law Talk episodes, as well as other podcast content produced by Minnesota Law. So what we're going to do is just really quickly introduce ourselves, have our law clerks introduce themselves, and then we'll take your questions. I'm Lori Gilday. I'm the Chief Justice. I've been the Chief since 2010. Justice Anderson. Um, I'm Barry Anderson. I uh, have been serving on this court since 2004. I was on the Court of Appeals before that. I'm a graduate of the University of Minnesota Law School way back in the Stone Ages, 1979. I was part of the second class to graduate from here. I thought it was kind of a mausoleum then. I kind of think that now. Hi, I'm Natalie Hudson. I've been on the court uh, since 2015, and before that, I spent 13 years on the Court of Appeals, and before that, uh, my practice primarily involved uh, public sector. I did eight years at the Attorney General's office doing criminal appellate work, doing essentially what you saw the attorneys here today uh, doing, and I, too, am a a graduate uh, of the U, uh, but I'm younger than Barry. <laughs> not by much, not by That's much. That's not much of an accomplishment. I know, I know, I know. No, I was an 82 grad, so yeah, back a ways. Go ahead. Hi, I'm Margaret Chudich. I've been on the court now for seven years. Uh, before that, I was on the Court of Appeals for four years. I also was an assistant dean at the Humphrey School across the way. Uh, good morning, Ann McKegg. I've been on the court since 2016. I am not a graduate from the school. I'm not a graduate of anything across the street. Um, I was a district court judge for almost nine years before joining the bench, and then I was an assistant Hennepin County attorney. Uh, hi, Paul Thiessen. I've been on the court since 2018, uh, and I was in private practice before that, and sometimes a public defender and in the legislature. Morning, everybody. I'm Gordon Moore. Um, I came to the court in August of 2020 after 25 years in Nobles County, Minnesota, eight and a half of those years uh, as a district court judge, number three terms as county attorney and a private uh, practice attorney. Before that, uh, I started at the attorney general's office, and it's uh, great to be in front of all of you today. Okay, Claire, go. Just who you are, what law school you went to, and where you're clerking, who you're clerking for. I'm Claire Kuznick. I went to Mitchell Hamlin for law school, and I Stand up, outside voice. <laughs> Amanda. Oh. Hi, Amanda I went here two years ago, and I clerked for Justice McKegg and Justice Tyson. Uh, Victor Ryan. I went to St. Thomas for law school, and I clerked for Chief Justice. McKegg. Marcus Weimler. I went to the University of Iowa College of Law, and I clerked for Justice Anderson. Good morning. My name is Allison Donalek. I attended Mitchell Hamlin for law school, and I clerk for Justice Moore. 
Good morning, I'm Avery Bennett. I graduated from this institution last year and I clerked for Justice Anderson and Justice Moore. Good morning, my name is Mary Claire Mulcahy. I attended St. Thomas for law school and I'm the shared clerk to Justice Hudson and Justice Chudich. Hi, I'm Catherine Rass. I went to Mitchell Hamlin and I clerk for Justice Thiessen. Good morning, I'm Chantal Pai. I clerk for the Chief, and I graduated from this law school in 2021. Daniel. Good morning, I'm Daniel Wasim. I clerk for Justice Hudson, and I went to Georgetown Law. Okay, I think that's all of our clerks, right? Okay, great. All right, questions from the audience, from the student audience, students. Um, good morning, my name is Jackie Randolph and I'm a 2L research assistant for the Legal Research and Writing Program. And this question is from an anonymous 1L. Mm. What is the court's decision-making process after hearing oral arguments? Justice Anderson. Thanks, Chief. Uh, once we leave here, we'll have a meeting of the seven of us, no law clerk, staff, anyone else present. We'll discuss the arguments that the parties made. We'll, uh, uh, there'll be a member of the court who'll make a presentation suggesting how the case should come out. We'll go around in order of seniority to uh, determine, with the chief speaking last, uh, to determine how the case comes out. Uh, once we leave that conference, uh, if it's unanimous, that justice will uh, prepare uh, an opinion. It'll uh, working with the law clerk, and it will circulate among all the members of the court. Uh, if there's a dispute, then, uh, in other words, there's a dissent uh, or a concurrence. Um, those two justices will go back and forth until they're either satisfied or exhausted, uh, <laughs> at which point it will follow the same process and circulate. And we have uh, the law clerks who work with us perform a very important role. Uh, uh, they'll, they'll do a sight check on that opinion to make sure the statements that the court has made are supported and accurate, and ultimately the commission will review it and then it'll be published. That's what happens. Other questions? Great question, by the way. Hi, I'm Miriam Miller and I'm a 1L. Um, and my question is, in deciding a case, do you primarily rely on the brief? What is said during oral argument? Are the two equally considered? Justice Hudson? I would say the two are equally considered, but, but maybe if a little tilt possibly to the brief, only because the brief, you the, as you saw, the, the time goes by so quickly here, and the attorneys can't get to every point that they would like to make or not as fully as they made them in the briefs. And so the briefs are really the heart of the case because we live with those, we keep those, we've read them obviously before the oral argument, we will come back to them over and over again to compare sometimes this is what they said at orals, here's what they said in their briefs, but to get that fuller understanding or to go into that depth that the attorneys weren't able to go through in oral argument. But they're both very, very important. But, but the briefs, I think, are the heart of it because that's where the attorneys have fully explained their positions. You have all of the case citations and the research is there and the arguments are there. Um, you often uh, also have amicus briefs as well, and so you get that other piece of understanding uh, of the case. So, yeah. great question. What else you got? Go ahead. Hi, I'm Hi. Samuel Mackey Colley, a 1L. What's that apart an excellent advocate from a good advocate? Justice <laughs> Chudich. Uh, I think an excellent advocate um, really helps us to 
um, find our, a correct path to um, the decision in the case. Um, sometimes we all agree on how a case should come out, but the path to getting there is super important and what you say about it. So I think the attorneys that come in with a rule of law already prepared and um, are willing to help us get to the right um, path and who also, you know, welcome questions and, and understand that that helps us to, to get to where we need to go. Those are the excellent attorneys. I'm seeing a theme here. You're going next. <laughs> it only took me five people to figure that out. <laughs> Hi, I'm Janelle Ray Walkton. I'm a 1L. What was something that you learned later in your career that you wish you'd known in law school? Mm. Justice McCain. Holy cow, that's a loaded question for me. I'm sure most people would say I really haven't learned that yet. <laughs> Boy. I think it's probably um, to just be uh, comfortable with being who I am and not worrying if that is not necessarily satisfactory to others, that um, I bring a, perhaps a different value and being different can be a good thing. I'm going to jump in here and, and say that it's worth it. I wish I knew in law school how, I mean, I didn't like law school. I thought law school was really hard. And for people out there who say they enjoy law school, I'm suspicious of you. <laughs> so I wish then, um, you know, that I knew that it would all be worth it. That's a good point. Hi, I'm Alex Barkley. I'm a 2L Legal Writing Center fellow. This question is also from an anonymous 1L. How important really is legal writing to the practice of law? Oh, wow. Oh. <laughs> it's not really that important. <laughs> um, no, well, I think, well, it's clear, I mean, it, it's kind of how we do things. I mean, it, what I guess I would say is the reason it's most important to me is because I can't think through stuff unless I actually write it out and um, work through the arguments. I and mean, I, it, I, it helps a lot to have conversations with people, but until I actually start to put stuff down on paper, and this is just how my brain works, I can't, I don't know if I, I don't feel comfortable that I have gotten the right answer because you don't kind of work your, when I'm talking, I don't work my way all the way through the arguments. So I think writing is kind of at the core of what lawyers do, which is to kind of reason out all the way. And uh, so I, it's probably as important a class uh, as you can take in law school, I would say. Hi, I'm Cole Edick, a 1L. There's a lot of talk about declining public trust in the federal judiciary, primarily the U.S. Supreme Court. Do you have concerns that this phenomenon applies to state judiciaries as well, and to what extent? Justice Moore, do you want to take this? Thank you, Chief. Your, your question is a good one. The importance of public trust and confidence in the judiciary is, is paramount. I mean, it, it centers what we do and how we do it. And without getting into discussions about individual circumstances or situations, I can assure you and everybody in this room that that issue is on the mind of us, not just with regard to decisions that we issue, but we also are involved in, in rules committee um, work. We promulgate the rules. We, prom we rules regarding bar admission, about you know, uh, attorney discipline, about um, you know, how we go about you know, the, uh, regulating the profession and the rules that govern it. And every one of those components of our job implicates the, the point that you make. And you know, I, it's, it's my personal belief that 
when we lead, lean forward into those things and, and explain what we're doing and why we're doing it, that hopefully that brings the public, uh, those of us, those in the public who are interested in becoming um, educated can, can learn about what we do. But uh, communication is so important in this day and age and, and we can't take the point that you make for granted for a minute. Great question. I'm going to jump in and respond on that I want because I want to uh, uh, remind everyone, and this comes from somebody who, you know, I, I'm getting very close to mandatory retirement for our judges, which is age 70. Um, but I want to remind everybody that there is history here. And so when you hear a question or a comment about um, I'm unhappy with particular decisions about particular courts and there's a public confidence issue. I'm not saying that's not true. That's something everybody gets to make a judgment about, free First Amendment and all that. But it's important to understand our history as well. And I can tell you growing up in the 1960s and driving around various parts of the United States and seeing signs that said impeach Earl Warren. And I can tell you if you study our history, you can find various aspects where there have been challenges about the confidence that the public may have in uh, not only our court, but other courts. Um, there are debates to be had about that, and uh, I think those debates are reasonable, but I think it's also important to know our history. And uh, you, you could find court controversies that go all the way back to Thomas Jefferson, the Federalists, and the and the uh, packing, the attempt to uh, pack the court in uh, the 1800 timeframe. So, um, be very careful of jumping to presentism kinds of conclusions based on what may be happening at any particular point. Not saying those conclusions are wrong. I'm just saying the story is often more complicated than it first appears. Go ahead. Hi, I'm Matt Lange, a 2L research assistant for the Legal Research and Writing Program. Uh, this question is also from an anonymous 1L. How do judges deal with the pressure of knowing your judgments are often the final say on issues that could affect thousands of lives? I'm going to skip you, Justice <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm sorry, repeat the question once again. What? Uh, how do judges deal with the pressure of knowing that judgments are often the final say on issues that could affect thousands of lives? It's mm -hmm. a good question. And, you know, I think once you make the decision that you want to be a judge and once you put on the robe, you you are agreeing, one, to make sure that your decisions abide by the Constitution of the United States, state of, Constitution of the state of Minnesota, and you are accepting that, that role, that the decisions that you make are going to impact uh, many. And I think some of it is it takes time, I think, like any in any job to kind of step into the shoes and sort of, as I sometimes say, kind of get under the weight of the robe because it is an awesome responsibility. But I think it's one that we all um, take very, very seriously. And a part of that is you work hard. You try to be as prepared as you can for every single case. <laughs> you, you dig into it with, with all you've got. You work closely with your clerks. Um, and then, of course, you work closely with your, your colleagues. The beauty of the fact that we sit on bunk uh, for all of our deliberations is, you know, we get to work with each other and pick each other's brains and, and build off of each other's strengths and weaknesses. And so, um, you know, you, you heard some slight disagreement between colleagues here during the, during the oral argument, and that's healthy. That's a good thing. And when we get back in conference, we'll talk some more about those things and, and probably many, many others. Um, and that's the beauty of, of having an appellate court and sitting with people with different backgrounds, both professionally and personally, that you can kind of come to that the right answer. 
um, because you know it is affecting a lot of people. Um, but it's something that you, again, that's, it's a part of judging, and you, you agree to do that when you, when you put on the robe. And so you do it to the best of your ability. Yes, go ahead. This is another question from an anonymous 1L. These anonymous 1Ls. <laughs> um, what role do clerks play in the work of the court, especially in deciding cases? Justice Tudich? Well, the clerks uh, play a big role in that. We ask uh, all of our clerks, the clerks are the ones who really dig into the case, make sure they understand every single thing that has gone on in the, in the case. Um, they look at the law that the parties have uh, provided to us and um, see if anything's missing. And we ask them for a recommendation. Um, we certainly, and we, you know, they're smart, they're smart people, they're new lawyers, so they, they don't have a ton of experience, but they really come up with great recommendations. And of course, then we use our experience and our knowledge of the law to see whether we agree with that recommendation or not. But they're a very important part of getting us up to speed uh, on these cases. I would also just add quickly to that. I know when I started at the Court of Appeals, I, I remember thinking, I'm going to write every opinion myself, you know, because I agreed to put this robe on, right? And so, no. Um, <laughs> when you're, you know, the Court of Appeals issues 2,000 some opinions a year. We don't issue quite that many, but the opinions that we issue are complex. They have many new nuances. They often involve constitutional issues. That, so it's a deep dive. Um, and so on both courts, typically the clerks will do, and I lost two S. Typically, the clerks will do the initial draft of many of the opinions. Um, some judges do that themselves, but typically it's the clerks that do that first draft. And then it comes to us or to the justices. And uh, if the case is assigned to me, my clerk's going to do that initial draft. And then I'm involved in the editing. And we go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth until I'm happy with it. And then we circulate it to, to our colleagues. And so that's another vital role that the, that the clerks play, as well as, and you heard somebody allude to it, the site checking. Kind of tedious, but so important that the cases go out uh, and they have been site checked and cases, you know, that everything's right. So we have more questions? Are you exhausted? Oh, there you are. Sorry, oh, you messed me up now. <laughs> uh, this is a question for the court clerks from an anonymous 1L, so I'll look this way. Um, what has seeing the work of the court from the inside taught you that law school did not? Chantal, you want to take a stab at that? <laughs> That's what you get for being the chief's clerk. <laughs> oh, boy, a microphone, too. Um, wow. I think one of the things that I have learned from working with the court is um, this is going to sound a little bit, but I like how little anyone knows about what's going on when you get started, um, which is not to say that these seven people don't have tons of expertise, but when you get a new case that's handed to you, you as the law clerk sort of become the expert on the case. Um, in some cases, you're the only person to start with who is like digesting all of the law. And I very much came to the court expecting like all seven of these justices to just like know all the laws, I think. <laughs> um, Disabuse you of that. And it's not, they don't quite know all of the laws. They probably know like 60, 70% of them. Um, but really, like, I was shocked at how much the law clerks were doing and how much they were brought to the table to, like, set the stage for how the court was thinking about the issues. We have time for, thanks, Chantal. I think we have time for one more question, maybe.
Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so this question is for the court from an anonymous 1L. Uh, in addition to good grades, law review, uh, moot court, what are some attributes that make for a good law clerk? Justice McKay, is it your turn? Yeah, I think that, um, thank you, that when you come and are interviewing with us, uh, you've already sort of passed the threshold. We all know that you're capable of doing the job. And to me, it's more about a fit then. Um, so we want to see what kind of a person you are, you know, what makes you interesting or different. And I'll tell you, like, um, my support staff person, Kasha, She's outstanding, but she'll say, this person, you know, won their state fair for cookies. We need to have them in the chambers. <laughs> um, and so, I mean, it's, you never know what we're going to find to be really interesting that sets you apart. So uh, know that if you get the interview before us, and even if you don't, it doesn't mean that you're incapable of doing the job. It just means that that you didn't make the cut as far as when, how we vote to get, um, to have clerks come before us. But, you know, it's um, just be yourself. I mean, that's what we want to see is we want to know, like, who are you, Victor? <laughs> you know, it's like, tell us about Victor, um, because we already know that you can do the job at that point. And I was just going to have, as a senior member of the court, have Justice Anderson. Yeah, so two, uh, two quick observations. One is um, I do think that when we go through the interview process, we're interested in you and your background and some of the interesting things you've done. I learned, um, for example, during interviewing law clerks that um, – that uh, the, the people who have the opportunity to serve in the role is Goldie Gopher. There's more than one person. I didn't know that. <laughs> turns out they, uh, and it turns out the least junior person gets to open shopping malls. I, you know, so this this was news to me. The second thing I would tell you is, um, the, is that in terms of the whole law clerk hiring process, um, you, you know, you're competing with the very best uh, from area law schools. The fact that we're interested in talking to you is a great, it's a great recognition of what you've accomplished. And um, don't be disappointed if it goes in a different direction. Just one very quick war story. Uh, when I left my first position, or I was in the process of losing my first, leaving my first position to move on to something else, um, I think I sent out, to, I don't know, 50 resumes. Um, 49 of them went nowhere. And the 50th one that ultimately led to um, my career, uh, my practice of law in Hutchinson, was about fourth on my list of where I wanted to go. Um, I thought I knew what I needed and what, I, what would be good for me. I had no idea. You won't either. It'll all work out. It'll be fine. You're going to have great careers. And I look forward to watching you from my front porch. <laughs> That was not a comment on the case we just <laughs> you, will be you have been a great audience. Thank you so much, and we're going to break now. Thank you. This podcast has been brought to you by the University of Minnesota Law School. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And subscribe to our YouTube channel for more Minnesota Law stories, news, and information. To subscribe to the official Minnesota Law Podcast channel, please visit soundcloud.com backslash Minnesota Law or find us on your preferred podcast network. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, the University of Minnesota or the University of Minnesota Law School. None of the content should be considered legal advice.